Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, if you know where to look, there are pockets in West Texas where visions of the Old West still appear from time to time, like mirages in the heat. I caught a glimpse one Saturday morning last December. Perched atop a pipe fence at the Bullhead Ranch, some 40 miles northwest of Odessa, I was scanning the horizon when a white-faced Hereford cow stepped through a thick tangle of mesquite. I don't see the cowboys. She was followed by her calf. Seconds later, a herd of rust-colored cattle burst through the brush and came streaming toward me. Guiding the cattle were a dozen cowboys. Most of them wore chaps and wide-brimmed hats. All were on horseback. The cowboys yipped and hollered as they pushed the herd. The hooves of the animals churned up dust and sent pale clouds streaming into the wide, empty sky. I was staring at a version of West Texas that existed long before oil changed everything. I'm Christian Wallace, and this is Boomtown, a podcast about the historical boom playing out right now in the Permian Basin. A half century before the first oil rigs punched holes across West Texas, scenes like the one you just heard were common. Ranching was the area's primary industry. In this episode, We'll meet cowboys and cowgirls who still work their ranches on horseback. Rural West Texans fighting to maintain their land and way of life, while their ability to make a living off the land gets harder and harder. For them, this boom can be a blessing and a curse. This is episode eight, Wild West Texas. I'm telling you, this'll crack because I cooked it long enough. This is my granny, Johnny Rawlwitz. I'm helping her make brittle for a family Christmas party. I'm holding on to a pot of molten corn syrup while she scrapes it off into a sheet pan. If you make it real smooth, like a, down here, I'll show you the difference in what it'll be. I'll smooth this out. Okay, I'm gonna have to let go. Okay. <laughs> that pan gets hot, I'm telling you. That stuff is like scald the balls off a brass billy goat. <laughs> scald the balls off a brass billy goat. <laughs> well, yeah. My granny is full of such things. A winter day might be... Cold as frog's butt in Alaska is what I always say. <laughs> and summertime in Texas is hotter than a Autry pistol. Fired seven rounds. <laughs> she is, as she says, a pure D country girl. Now that's got to cool and that's all we gotta do. Her house is kind of a shrine to the country life. On the shelves are trophies won from showing horses and bronze sculptures of cowboys on horseback sculpted by Betty Sue Rose, Granny's sister. Betty Sue also painted many of the scenes on the wall, ranch hands working cattle, horses grazing in idyllic pastures. Over the fireplace hangs a portrait of my great-grandfather astride a buckskin horse, tipping his hat. 
The cookie jar, which Granny has had since I was a kid, is shaped like a horse and neighs when you open it for a treat. When was the first time you remember getting on a horse? Well, my mother has a picture of me when I was like three months old, and I'm on the horse with Dad. He's got me sitting up between the ears of his calf roping horse, and uh, I just was with horses from then on. Granny's house is eight miles outside of my hometown of Andrews. We call the 20-acre spread the Bean Farm. When she and my grandpa Wallace moved there in the early 70s, money was tight. So for a little while, Granny served a big pot of beans for nearly every dinner. At the time, their little three-bedroom house was the first home on a dusty Caliche road with no name. Oh, my land, yes. We moved here in 1973. We were the only ones out here. This house and the one on the corner down there is the only houses that were here. My dad was in fourth grade at the time. He remembers helping my grandpa weld together oil-filled pipe that forms the horse stalls and roping arena that still stand today. Not long after they settled at the bean farm, Granny came home one day to find that the county had placed a sign at the turnoff to their house. It was green with white letters, and it said Wallace Road. Granny was awfully proud of that. Besides a short stint living in Midland when she was in elementary school, Granny has always lived in the country, mostly on ranches in West Texas. Oh, yes. My dad left school at 14 and uh, rode horseback from Midland, Texas to Silver City, New Mexico. At that time, mom was living on a ranch out there with her mom and dad and brothers, sisters, and he, he met her then. This was the 1930s. There were cars on the road, but as Granny said, my great-grandfather, Chuck Houston, made the 400-mile trip on horseback. But I asked Daddy when he rode out there to Silver City, I said, Dad, how did you eat? He said, well, there's ranches all the way from here to Silver City, New Mexico. So he would stop in, and for his time there, because I'm sure he didn't have a red cent to his name, They'd have a bronc or two that needed to be started. And so he would start their colts and ride them, and, and he'd eat and sleep there for his board and where I'd ride this horse. My great-granny, Billy McDermott, was still in high school when the two met. Chuck worked on nearby ranches, waiting for her to graduate so they could marry. And I remember him telling me that when they got married and they had one horse and they had a pickup, that had wooden sideboards on the side, and they put that horse up in the back of the pickup and drove to Midland, Texas. And when they came to Midland, they had one dime between them. While working ranches around Midland, they had Granny and later Betty Sue. Granny took to the ranch life from day one. When she was three years old, she had a gelding named Dash. The daddy would saddle him up, put him in this pen, and I would climb up on the fence, get off on him, and ride him and ride him until I got tired. And I was only three then, and, but I can remember that as plain as if it was yesterday. Growing up, Granny's heroes were singing cowboys, Gene Autry, Roy Rogers, and Hopalong Cassidy. She and Betty Sue would often grab their cap guns, saddle their horses, and head out into the pasture for make-believe campouts. They'd swap out playing the sheriff or the outlaw. Even in the 1950s, some of the houses Granny lived in didn't have electricity. At night, 
they would burn coal oil lamps, and being far from town meant you were even less protected from the elements. That was during the era when those big sandstorms would roll in, and you could see them coming. They would be red and they'd just be boiling like this. And we would batten all, everything down real good. And that old house that we lived in there, it would be dirt inside the house of that windowsill that day. And we'd cover our beds with a, a sheet so that when we went to bed, we'd take that sheet off and all the dust and dirt would be on it. They were horrible. In fact, many times we put a wet uh, handkerchief across our nose so we could breathe. Granny first started working cattle alongside her father when she was a young girl. She developed a knack for treating animals, whether she was working on heifers with screwworms or bottle feeding a newborn colt. And then we'd get our horses, trailer, rope, load them in the trailer and bring them to the wormy traps, what we called it. We put the sick cow so we could watch them and make sure that they healed up. It was a pretty trying little chore. Did you like doing that, though? Oh, my word, yes. I thought I was in heaven. Living out in the sticks also meant that Granny rode the bus to school. In sixth grade, she got transferred to what was known as the Rich Kids School. For the first time, she was in class with the children of bankers and local oilmen. It was a tough transition. She would cry because she didn't fit in with the city kids. Eventually, though, her outlook changed. I learned that I felt much more privileged to have come from my background as country girl. And I didn't care if they called me a country girl. I was tickled to death over that. After graduating high school, she met my grandpa, Bob Wallace. Like her mom, Granny became the wife of a ranch hand. One of her responsibilities was cooking for a crew of cowboys. And that was mostly our menu was... uh, Chicken fried steak, potatoes, and gravy. Mm-hmm. And then there'd, there'd be vegetables thrown in, some green beans or corn. And later on, we we did try out some Jello salads on cowboys. <laughs> they will not eat green Jello, <laughs> so it's got to be red. Really? <laughs> Regardless of the flavor. <laughs> it's just a cowboy thing, huh? I guess it's a cowboy thing. Like she did when she was a girl. Granny gave basic medical attention to everyone out on the bean farm, both the four-legged and two-legged variety. I mean, you're basically kind of a a horse vet in some ways. Oh, yes. I've had a lot of people call me for vet things. In fact, I had a man come by here one time, and he had a fighting rooster. And this rooster got beat up pretty bad. (laughs) He said, can you give my rooster a penicillin shot? And I thought, where do you get the rooster? <laughs> a penicillin shot. But I filled my little syringe with about three cc's of penicillin and pulled his big old leg out and just gave him a shot in that leg, and that guy made it to Louisiana and raised more fighting chickens from him. <laughs> I've had quite some experiences. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, didn't you used to give Dad the same shots you'd give the horses? Oh yeah, I gave him, uh, I gave him B12, and I wouldn't go with the penicillin and stuff because that's strictly. I kind of figured that was vet, veterinary purpose only, but. 
Part of what Granny enjoys most about living on ranches around West Texas is the practice of neighboring. The women would come with the husbands when we branded, and we'd be peeling potatoes and chopping onions and everything, getting lunch ready for them while they were out branding and gathering and branding the cattle. So we had a lot of good camaraderie there with the... the neighbor women mm-hmm. and and their husbands because they would come help us uh, do our branding. When she wasn't cooking, Granny was out riding horses, tending cattle, and helping with other chores required to keep a ranch going. It was hard work, but sweat never bothered her. What shook her toughness to the core was going through a divorce. A few years after they'd settled in at the bean farm, my Granny and Grandpa split up. Was that hard for you to, to go through a divorce at, like in the oh, 70s? Oh, my word. And... I thought my life was over because I didn't marry to divorce. Yeah. I married till death to us part. My grandpa headed north, leaving Granny to take care of the place with just my dad and my uncle Skeet to help train the horses and run the stables. But that was one of the hardest times through my life mm-hmm. was to get through that and not have the family because I am a very family oriented person I like the I love my family and I didn't like going places without him with me Mm. because he was the other half Mm -hmm. I didn't like just me and the boys going because they well they don't have a daddy anymore Mm -hmm. oh I did not like that yeah but uh, I just prayed myself through it but I think my best solitude was when I was just distraught to the point I didn't know what to do next I just opened up my bible and read all four pages all four uh, yeah the columns yeah columns yeah Yeah. and I don't care where in that bible you were I would get peace would you ride horses at all to do that oh I was still riding Mm -hmm. oh yeah see when he left we had four or five horses here that we were still, they were still in training. I was taking an eight hour job and come home at five o'clock and ride at least two horses every day and switch them off the next day I'd ride the other two. And that's when I would vent. Mm-hmm. I would ride those horses out there in the pasture. I would holler and cuss and scream and get it all out of my system. Go back to the house and have to be civil to my kids. Being a single mother and operating the bean farm wasn't easy with two wild adolescent boys. One time, my dad wrecked his motorcycle on the Caliche Road leading to their house. When he hit the fence, the barbed wire sliced him centimeters from his jugular. He still has the scar. And Skeet? You probably remember him from episode one. We always carried uh, super glue, alcohol, a bottle of vinegar in the truck when we went casing. (laughs) Because we was always getting in a fight in the bar, somebody would always get cut open, so we'd just super glue. <laughs> Come here, you'll be all right. <laughs> yeah, tell me about some of the things. I, they need do. A, I need a sympathy card for that. <laughs> um, I looked out one day, and Skeet and Wade Purvis had the hood of an old pickup hooked behind the horse. And one was riding the hood of the deal, and one was riding the horse, and they were making circles in the arena. <laughs> I thought, if something happened, they got in front of that hood, it cut their head plumb off. Mm. 
You, they didn't pay attention to safety, I don't think so. Despite multiple trips to the hospital, the three of them managed to get by. Granny later met Carl Rawlwitz. They were married before I was born, and he's always been a grandfather to me. Papa Carl worked at a gas compressor station for Texaco, but he also grew alfalfa on the side. Once, I asked him why he bothered with the alfalfa. He thought for a minute and said, I like to watch it grow. As a kid, the bean farm was one of my favorite places in the world. I spent a lot of time out there. My two brothers and I built forts out of the square bales of hay. We shot each other with BB guns, rode horses and occasionally a goat, and raced around on a go-kart. Growing up, we never once slept in a bed out there. We made pallets on the floor, right there on the shag carpet full of arena dust and sticker burrs. I still love going to see Granny and Papa at the bean farm, though much has changed. The Caliche Road has long since been paved. The sign at the end now says Southeast 4001, no more Wallace Road. The biggest change is the amount of people who now live on all sides of Granny and Papa. Granny says many new homes and RV parks have been built since the boom. Like, how do you feel personally about having more neighbors and all that? Is it a good thing or a bad thing or a neutral thing? Well, I like the idea that there's progress going on. You, you wouldn't want it to just stay and stagnate. It, it's very good for our economy in this area. I'm old fashioned and I do still love the country, but I'm in the middle of 20 acres, so I still have a little bit of hollering room and I, <laughs> they're not choking me absolutely to death like, you know, if they were right next door to me in town. Right, right. Um, I just would be like a cage lion there, I think. Uh-huh. <laughs> Granny is also grateful for the boom because it helps her business. To make a little money and to keep busy, she boards horses at the bean farm. Lately, the stalls have been full. When the bus goes, everybody gets rid of their horses because mm-hmm. they can't afford to feed them and care for them. And then the minute the business comes back, uh, this place fills up. And this is a healing place out here because that's mm-hmm. what horses do is help keep people calm down from the urban world. They can come ride their horses and relax. and mm-hmm. That's what it does for me, too. But these days, the urban world is encroaching, and it's bringing more than just people to her doorstep. Up until recently, if you stood on Granny's back porch and looked past the arena, there is an unbroken view of the horizon. But nowadays, more and more flares are cropping up. If you're not familiar with the term, flares are sort of like giant torches that burn off excess natural gas when it's not profitable or there's not enough pipeline capacity to send it down to market. They burn off highly potent greenhouse gases, as well as pollutants that can cause respiratory problems. You, is that flare still out back, or has yes, that gone away? Yes, there is. Well, they did get it cut off for a while, but it come, it's on and off. And you can stand on the front or back porch and count probably anywhere from three to ten flares going in the air. Wow. That's quite a few. I mean, way more from back when I was And I'm a kid. sure that is not helping our air quality. But you have to make some sacrifices somewhere. The scale of these sacrifices is growing larger. Now, we have also seen a very dramatic drop in our rainfall here. 
because we used to raise alfalfa in our pastures in the south, mm -hmm. and we could not irrigate it enough to keep it wow. alive. Because you have to have a little bit of rain to help you along, mm -hmm. and we didn't have it, so we had to plow it all under. And on top of that, your water supply from people irrigating north of us, mm -hmm. like Seminole, Lubbock, Littlefield, Brownfield, all those farms up in there are lowering our water table. Mm. You think maybe some of like the oil field use too of all that water is probably... I think, uh, I think they probably have a lot to do with some of the bad water sources in this area. Mm. In fact, about three or four miles down the road here, that water is totally undrinkable. Really? And I think, I think the oil field ruined that. Yeah, it's kind of like with the flaring. Oh, yeah. See, I don't tell what that's doing to our air. I mean, we surely don't have clean air. There's not much reliable data measuring how much flaring is going on across the Permian Basin. Companies self-report emissions, and the agency responsible for regulating them is mostly toothless. One report released last year did find that the amount of methane being vented or flared has doubled since 2017. And as for groundwater contamination, it happens across the region. Last September, groundwater near the Odessa city limits was found to have been contaminated by oil field service and supply operations. In that instance, the responsible party came forward and worked with state and local agencies to remediate the contamination. There's just so many pros and cons to the oil industry that's so important, mm -hmm. but yet, you sometimes wonder if that overrides the bad side of it. Because there is definitely a bad side of it, like our air and water. And even we've even had some thinking about having earthquakes because they've drilled so much and they are doing so much horizontal stuff now, too. The earthquakes Granny mentions are common in areas where a lot of fracking takes place. Scientists who study seismology have published research linking earthquakes to both hydraulic fracturing and injection wells. Though the industry has pushed back on these claims, the steady uptick in quakes since the fracking boom has raised more questions from the locals. The uneasy tension between ranchers and the oil industry is nothing new. In so many ways, drilling destroys the land they hold dear, and with fracking, that's more true than ever but it also makes their way of life possible. Despite the flares and the influx of people, Granny and Papa aren't planning on going anywhere. But recently, they've begun talking about the long-term future of the bean farm. Granny and Papa are both approaching 80, and none of her grandkids are begging to take over the operations. Do you ever wish that me or my brothers or dad and Skeet were more out on the ranch and stuff? Well, I, I would love for that to happen, but economically, it is not any good because you cannot, they're not high paying jobs anymore, and you cannot get ahead in that life. So you have to make the choice of trying to make a living and prepare for your senior years, or just when you get to your senior years, you're just not in good shape. This scenario isn't unique to my family. It's becoming more and more common among ranching families across West Texas. As the older generations die, 
younger ones aren't as likely to take the ranch on. Raising cattle on these often parched pastures is risky and only marginally profitable, if at all. For many of the younger generations, it's simply not worth it. But there are some West Texas ranchers that have managed to keep their land and traditions intact. And they almost always have help from another, far more lucrative industry. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. This is the fall roundup at the Bullhead Ranch, a time when all the cattle are gathered. The calves that were born in the spring are branded, and the bulls are castrated and dehorned. It's tough, noisy work. What you got? But the cowboys know exactly what they're doing. Two riders on horseback rope a calf from the herd and drag it over to the team. Two cowboys hold the animal still. One man notches the ear with a sharp blade, another administers a series of vaccines, one does the branding, another clips the horns, and if it's male, one cowboy has the unpleasant task of slicing off the testicles. The bloodied testes are dropped in a bag. They're often taken home and eaten as delicacies known as mountain oysters. So who's cooking those tonight? <laughs> a lot of nuts. <laughs> You've been taking the huevos, right? Me too. You've been cooking them? Yeah, I'm going to cook with onions and jalapeno. All right, what time? I'll what be there. Time? Uh, <laughs> when we don't, when we don't hear. <laughs> Though it may sound like a scene from an old western, we're surrounded on all sides by the wool patch. The ranch is right in the heart of the old dollar hide field, an area that's been producing oil for 75 years. The Bullhead Ranch is owned by Dan Fisher. His family has been working the same line of Hereford cattle for over a century. The Hereford cattle that, that my granddad started back years ago are still there today. That's all we raise is Hereford cattle. And as far as I know, since the early 1900s, there's never been a female bought. It's, we've just bought bulls and raised the, and improved that original herd right up to today. Dressed in a denim pearl snap shirt, starched wranglers, and a black felt hat, Dan is the platonic ideal of the West Texas cattleman. He's 68, lean and athletic. In fact, seven years ago, Dan broke his own record as the oldest athlete to compete at the national finals rodeo. He'd made the trip with his two sons, Vin and J. Tom Fisher, who were also competing for a championship buckle in the steer roping event. It was the second time that all three of them had made it to the finals, a feat no father-son team had ever managed in rodeo history. 
The Fishers are the closest thing Andrews has to royalty. Though I know it would embarrass Dan to say so, it's true. The Bullhead Ranch, where I attended the Roundup, is one of several properties the family owns in the area. The sprawling Bar F Ranch, which makes up a good chunk of northwestern Andrews County, is their primary headquarters. Despite the pump jacks dotting the arid land, the ranch is beautiful with quail, coyotes, and record-setting mule deer. Dan's grandfather founded the Bar F in 1908. Well, Fisher Ranch actually started with my grandfather, Marvin McKinley Fisher Sr., came here from Arkansas. Came out here on a train, and he was a trader. He would buy and sell land, horses, cattle. He bought land here in Andrews County. I think the first section he bought was about a mile from right, actually right here. Dan and I are sitting with his wife, Pam, in the living room of their new house on the northern edge of Andrews. The Fishers spent two and a half years building their dream home, a beautiful ranch-style mansion that Pam designed all the way down to the tile. There's an art studio upstairs and a full-on movie theater in the basement with a ceiling of twinkling lights that look like the Milky Way. Pam had master woodworkers hand-carve pieces of furniture in Mexico. She also planned the subdivision where the house sits on a road she named Prairie Lane. The Fishers can trace their success back to Marvin Sr., Dan's grandfather. In the 20s, he was one of the first to drill for oil in Andrews County. And so your grandfather, when he got out here, he looks around, there's a few ranching communities and no oil wells yet. They don't even know no. that it, they're going to find that. Was he taking a gamble, I guess? Sure, he was taking a big gamble, yeah, especially buying minerals and things that he did that we still have in the family today, which yeah. have been very profitable. Was that kind of a game changer? What's that, the oil? Mm -hmm. Oh yes, definitely. Yeah, it wasn't that much of a game changer then, but it has been over the years, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Because it's right now with cattle markets and the way land is, it's hard to keep land together to raise cattle on because the land's worth more than what you can make Selling raising cattle. cattle, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so you don't see that too much in big ranches anymore. Sure, you know? sure. And, uh, but yeah, the oil business has been one of the main things that helped us keep mm -hmm. the land together. The Fishers have been lucky. Few families have been able to keep their ranches intact. Most ranchers are what Dan calls dirt rich and cash poor. When a ranch owner dies, the next generation doesn't always have the money on hand to pay the inheritance tax and other expenses. So they partition mm -hmm. it all, sell that land to somebody else. And it just over the years, you know how things sure. get away. You know? and, and as you partition, especially out here, you need a lot of land to graze cattle That's right. on. That's so right. the smaller your, your property gets, the yes. less herd you can have, the less uh -huh. herd you can have, the less money you're going to make. So it's kind of... And the more drought you have, the fewer cattle mm -hmm. you can raise. And even when it rains, after a four or five year drought, the cattle that you've been able to keep, um, they don't have as many babies mm -hmm. because it affects them mm -hmm. physically. So it takes a while to build your herd back up and then, you know, to try to get back in the, in the black, you know. But that's been, that's the main reason, those reasons are why there's not many old ranches anymore, yeah, still family owned from the beginning just because of those factors right there. Right. So we've been real fortunate to be able to uh, 
keep it in the family. Nothing big actually came from the wells that Dan's grandfather drilled in the 20s, but he set an example for his son. Marvin Jr. was only 16 years old when Sr. died in 1944 and left him to take care of the ranch. It was a tall order for a kid fresh out of high school. But Marvin Jr. followed in his father's footsteps by trading horses, selling cattle, and coaxing companies to drill wells on his ranch. Dan came along in June of 1951. A few weeks after his birth, he was at the Pecos Rodeo, where his dad competed in the roping. It was the beginning of a lifetime love affair with rodeo. Dan went pro in 1980, and the next year, he made his first trip to the National Finals Rodeo for team roping. He eventually made it to a total of 18 National Finals, a feat which earned him entry into the Texas Rodeo Hall of Fame. <laughs> you know. That's why they, the announcers called Dan the living legend. And here's the living legend. No. <laughs> yes, they can. You don't hear them. I, I do know, I when do. I'm in the grandstand. <laughs> well, that's what I. Oh, just, that's, that's all they're saying. This guy's old. <laughs> 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 that, that's what they mean without just saying it. Dan's 40 year career has come with its share of injuries. He's undergone 11 surgeries. His latest was performed shortly before our visit in Andrews. When we talked, his arm was still in a sling. I had a shoulder surgery two weeks ago and a yeah. knee surgery same day. I tore this shoulder up in, uh, at a rodeo in October. I had two broken bones in there and three torn tendons. And I fought it all year long. But there at the end of the year, I started doing better. I won uh, 13,000 at Cheyenne, like I was telling you a while ago, won the short go there. Uh, and then two days later, I tore my knee up in Dalhart, Texas at the XIT rodeo. And I actually placed on that run that I tore my knee up and uh, he kept going. So I kept. I came home that night. Went to the doctor. It was torn. And so I decided. Well, I need surgery here. I definitely need surgery here. I'll just stop and get them both done. So that's what I did. And I had them both done the same day by Dr. Daniel Cooper in Dallas, who is actually another kind of cowboy doctor. He's the Dallas Cowboys doctor, the guy you see goes out on the field whenever hat. a cowboy gets hurt. Yeah. That's that's my doctor, and he did he both of them one day. Of course, not everyone on the rodeo circuit can afford the same surgeon who works on the Dallas Cowboys. Nor do most rodeo contestants travel in fashion like Dan does. These days, when he goes down the highway, it's in a beautiful custom trailer with flat screen TVs, a revolving satellite dish, and plush leather seats. While Dan works hard to stay in shape and practices constantly, his rodeo career is cushioned in part by oil money. Much of that money actually came after his kids got involved. When oil was down in the early 2000s, Dan's oldest son, Vin, decided to quit law school and, with Dan's backing, they went to buying oil wells. Dan's younger son, J. Tom, went to school to become a landman, and McKinley, Dan's daughter, worked as their attorney. The family's timing was good. When oil shot up during the shell boom, the fishers were in a good position to make some money. We bought and sold a lot of oil wells in the last 20 years. Making good trades. And uh, it's been real lucrative. That's, that's been one of the best things for, for us. We're so glad Ben wanted to come home and yeah, be an oil I've, man. Jay, Tom and Vin are able to keep up with their oil business while traveling the rodeo circuit. Even when they're on the road traveling, they've got their laptops, and that's what they're doing is researching oil properties to buy and sell. Wow. And uh, 
it goes back to the, their their uh, original roots of their great great grandfather's trait. It's the same thing. That's mm -hmm. what we do. Yeah. It strikes me that these are two of like our biggest Texas myths, right? Our biggest icons are the cowboy and the old man, uh -huh. and and this is like uh, a blending of the two in, yeah. in modern Texas. That's that's pretty much what it is. Sure mm -hmm. is. Yeah. This reminds Dan of his favorite movie, Giant. I don't know if y'all seen that, mm -hmm. but it was Rock Cousin, Elizabeth Taylor, and there's, uh, I can, I can uh, relate to everything in that movie because they were raised Hereford cattle on a West Texas ranch and they got old business. And then all of a sudden they had airplanes and things, you know, uh -huh. and then they got where they didn't like all that. They wanted to go back to the ranch. They went back to the ranch and uh, finished the movie, you know, being just a West Texas rancher again. So that's kind of what it is. Yeah. Although Dan is a moneyed old man, he's stayed true to the path carved for him by his father and his father before him. The Fishers invest back into the community. The annual Marvin Jr. Memorial Roping raises money for a scholarship they give to college-bound high school seniors. And by no means does the Fishers' oil money mean that Dan sweats any less than other ranchers. At the roundup at the Bullhead Ranch, he was right there on horseback with all the other cowboys. It seems like you could just say, okay, I'm done with the, the cattle and all that hard work, but you're still out there, you're still doing it. Yeah, you don't see many ranchers ever retire. Retirement and ranching don't go together because ranching is what you love and uh, what you would do if you didn't have anything else to do, you'd do it anyway. So most West Texas ranchers never retire. They just die. And that's just the way it is. And uh, retirement's not something you look forward to at all uh, as a West Texas rancher. A little while back, I met another rancher, 50-year-old Michael Moore, at an annual barbecue held for the friends and clients of an oil-filled electric company in Andrews. These types of events are sometimes dangerously lubricated, but this one was sponsored by a snow-haired Baptist, so the hardest drink on hand was sweet tea. Michael and I shook hands while waiting to load our plates with steaks grilled by a crew down from Abilene. After a bit of small talk, I asked Michael how many head of cattle he ran on his spread. He studied me from under the brim of his black felt cowboy hat. He told me quietly, we don't ask folks that out here. Nonetheless, he politely offered to give me a tour of his corner of the Permian Basin, his ranch in southwestern Andrews County and the nearby sand dunes of northern Winkler County. A few days later, I climbed into his F-350 and we bumped down Texas Highway 128 a two-lane road connecting Andrews to Jal, New Mexico. The bar ditch was littered with shredded tires and trash. I'll take you on down to the ranch here. But, you know, it's the highways. It's The highways are in poor shape. They weren't built for this much traffic. They weren't mm -hmm. built for these kinds of weights right. of these vehicles that are coming down through here. And the trash. Yeah, you, you I saw tons of it just sitting right there. Yeah, and it's everywhere. And where we left your pickup, mm -hmm. the every, nearly every gate entrance I've got, whether it's mine or Oilfield, there's 30 beer bottles there. You know, and I'm, I'm not a teetotaler, okay? Right. But That's it, it's litter. Yeah, it's trashy. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, um, it's just some of the some of the stuff we have to deal with out here. 
You can hear Michael's frustration. His respect for the land runs deep. Earlier that morning, three hours before sunrise, Michael and a ranch hand had driven to a nearby property to help round up another rancher's cattle. They're continuing the same time-honored tradition of neighboring that my granny used to practice. We, we stay busy, yeah. And we, we still neighbor quite a bit in this part of the country. Uh, uh-huh. Neighbors call and we'll go help them work their cattle and mm-hmm. we call them when we need help and they'll, you know, they, just like we did this morning, we got up at 4.30. Wow. Uh, fed the horses, saddled them, put them in the trailer and way before daylight, you know, we meet up at a windmill or a set of pens. Yeah. somewhere and eat a quick bite of breakfast and get in the saddle and take off and go. That's, what, that's what we go do for them and they go do for us. Sure. After a devastating prairie fire burned some 80% of Andrews County in 2011, Michael took it upon himself to protect his neighbors if it ever happened again. After that, after that fire, I bought a, I bought a, a decent half truck and put a big 700-gallon tank on the back. That truck would go anywhere. <laughs> yeah. And but the thing is, when when we're on fire, we call and the neighbors come. And when when they call, they cut a fire. We we crank that thing up and we go. Yeah. Starting in the fall of 2016, Michael and his neighbors were approached by companies asking them to sell or lease their land. Unlike the landmen who'd come knocking before. These people weren't interested in the oil beneath the ground. They were after the sand sitting on top. If you were driving through this part of West Texas and didn't know about the sand dunes, you might think you just stumbled through a wormhole straight into a miniature version of the Sahara Desert. Beautiful rolling dunes of cornmeal colored sand appear seemingly out of nowhere in certain areas. For years, these dunes were little more than a curiosity a place to ride ATVs and for high schoolers to drink beer. But when fracking came along, they suddenly had commercial value. Fracking requires a lot of fine-grade silica sand to keep the fractures propped open so the hydrocarbons can flow into the well. Up until recently, most of the sand used by drilling companies had been dug from Central Texas or up in Wisconsin or Minnesota and shipped in by rail. By harvesting the sand right here in the Permian Basin, drilling companies could save a fortune on transportation. But those companies first had to talk the landowners into letting them do it. Michael and his family were hesitant. So yeah, this would have been fairly just peaceful, nothing going on no. as far as people. No, it was, it was pretty quiet over here. Now, I'm not trying to sound hypocritical, okay? Okay. I, because we did sell, I'm making disclosure, we did sell some land to a sand company. Okay. It's that one right there. Okay. That I can't talk about. Sure. So I'm not trying to sound hypocritical when I talk about the people, mm-hmm. the damage to the roads, and the trash. Right. Okay. It's just what it is. Yeah. But we, I mean, in the back of our minds, we all kind of knew what was coming with them. You know, I understand it right now that there's going to be, uh, as of right now, there's 16 mines that are already operating Mm -hmm. or under construction. 
The family's decision boiled down to pragmatism. They knew the sand companies were coming anyway, with or without a piece of their land. So they leased. Since we spoke, at least four more mining facilities have been constructed among the rolling dunes that stretch from Crane to Kermit, small towns some 30 and 45 miles west of Odessa. The Wall Street Journal has dubbed the craze the New Texas Gold Rush. As we drove, Michael pointed to a huge sand mining facility. It looked like a series of massive grain silos planted in the middle of the Sahara. Yeah, I'm gonna pull in here. They don't know me down here. <laughs> uh, one of my neighbors had this ranch leased for probably 30, 40 years. Mm. When this ranch sold to a uh, the sand company, we came over here and helped them move the cattle off yeah. last summer. This road used to just be a two-track, barely wide enough for a pickup coming down through here. Is it kind of bittersweet for you to be moving cattle off of your neighbor's ranch, or is it just more of a kind of a business calculation that you feel pretty comfortable about as far as that's just it's a smart move? And... Uh, well, they didn't sell the land, you know, mm -hmm. he just leased it. Okay. And he's a big operator in this area. So and he's got land he, elsewhere he can Yeah, this was, this, this was not the only herd of cattle he owned. Gotcha. But, um, you know, there was 10 sections of land here. Mm -hmm. Just like that, it was taken out of agricultural production. Right, yeah. Okay. And as far as it being bittersweet, you know, a lot of these older, some, let me think how I want to formulate this since you're recording me. <laughs> you, have to, you have to understand yeah. some of this land acquired by the sand companies. Some of it came from old ranch families that have been here mm -hmm. in this area 80 to 100 years or longer. Mm -hmm. And then some of it was acquired from guys who've only owned it the last 15, 20 years, a lot less time. Mm -hmm. So most of the older families I know that sold, and I can't speak for all of them, okay? Sure. But it, it's basically a matter of this sand has been here for a long time and not all of it needs to disappear. So not every acre out here in these sand hills will ever be mined. I know several of those families they they did not put over you know, they did not put everything under contract or sell right. or lease out. Just certain swaths of land. Yes. And their reasoning you know, that's up to them. I know how I looked at it, and that is that it's been here forever and some of it needs to be saved. Right. For several reasons. The wildlife, it's nice to look out there and see some sand hills. Yeah. There, there is some wildlife out there, you know, protection to them. And, uh, you know, there are certain vegetative species that are in that sand. Mm -hmm preserve them as well. Michael is genuine when he talks about the importance of preserving the land and wildlife. He's always been attuned to the difficult balance between profit and preservation. His grandfather-in-law ranched in the Permian Basin for 99 years. My wife's grandfather lived to be nearly 99. Uh -huh. And he was in his right mind up till a few weeks before he passed. 
mm-hmm. about 11 years ago. And he lived in this area all his life. He and a lot of the other old timers at the time, we've lost a lot of them in the last 10 years, but they were always telling us, us younger ones, they would say, one day that water will be worth more than that oil and gas. Mm-hmm. So take care of your water. Mm-hmm. Their prediction has come true. Selling Permian water has become far more profitable than raising cattle, and many ranchers have gotten in on the act. Several have even saved their ranches from bankruptcy. You can't blame them, but it's not exactly a long-term solution either. The land can't support cattle if your water gets sucked dry. Ranchers know this, of course, but balancing profit and preservation hasn't gotten easier. For his part, Michael wants a future for his daughter, Allison, and his son, Mason, and that means giving up some of his land to the mining operations sprouting across the beautiful West Texas sand dunes. Does Mason want to kind of follow in your footsteps as far as ranching goes? He, he does. Um, and we're, you know, we, we're trying to plan for that for the future. You know, I just never, I'm 49. My wife is about to be 48. As we headed back towards Andrews County, we passed what was once an oil field camp in the old Dollarhide field. I asked Michael to pull over so I could walk around. I could see a few sand silos on the horizon. The rest was a flat sea of mesquite and shinoak, still green from recent rains. A hawk perched on a fence post. It was quiet, save for the rhythmic groans of a pump jack. At its peak, some 30 families had called this patch of dust home. Now, the only signs that anyone had ever dwelled there were a clump of dead elm trees and a few broken concrete slabs rising from the pale dirt. Back at the bean farm, Granny is sipping big red and rum from a big gulp-sized cup and nursing a broken collarbone. She fell down the stairs while sailing around the Caribbean on a country music cruise. She said the ports were fine, but she really liked seeing acts like Ronnie Millsap and Neil McCoy. And even with a broken collarbone, she didn't miss a single show. I was on that ship with every state in the Union was represented, and uh, they know when you're from Texas. And they're real excited that they met somebody from Texas. How, what do you, when, if someone says, well, what's it like out there? What do you, like, do you have a response? I just tell them it's like kind of desert country, mm-hmm. and plus the oil fields. That's what we're noted for now. Used to be cattle, cotton, and oil. Now it's just oil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Because they've taken over all the pastures. Yeah. Don't see, well, you see a few cattle, but... Not so many. Not very many anymore. Yeah. Because the ranching's kind of gone by the wayside. And like I said, that's due to the younger generation. They cannot make a living on it. And that's why that it's gone. And because of cattle prices and all regulations, all kind of stuff, you know, have caused it. So sure. Yeah. There's, that's about all you could say about it. But this is home to me, and probably be till they bury me up there in the cemetery where my plot is. I try to wrap things up. Well, thanks for sharing. Huh? Thanks for sharing well, all this I stuff. shared a lot of things, but uh, I have totally enjoyed being from West Texas 
and I don't care where I go, they're going to know I'm from Texas. <laughs> and they're going to know that I love Texas. Stand up for her. Before I go, there's something else she wants to show me, her almanac. She uses it to determine all kinds of things at the bean farm, like when to plant seeds and when to cut the cattle, which is what they were doing at the Bullhead Ranch. Now, if only she could find it. Where is my almanacs? Do you remember? Let me look by the bed. Oh, Sometimes I go Are we getting ready to castrate somebody? The new one? Yeah. Huh? The new one? I don't care if it's a new or old one. I just want my almanac. I don't, well, I don't know. <laughs> you had... I know. You just bought, got a new one. I know. But uh, I can't find either one of them. They're together. Wherever they are, they're together. Well, I don't know where you put them. Um, you don't never oh, tell I me. I didn't look under there. That's ridiculous. I can't I believe the almanac's not right. Is it on top of the Bible? It's probably <laughs> right on top of the Bible, if I was guessing. <laughs> I don't think she's me. got one of them anymore. I surely <laughs> do. Oh. The Bible I, or the almanac? <laughs> On the next episode of Boomtown, the Permian Basin's next bust may be coming sooner than expected. What really interested me about this was the fact that the industry actually doesn't make any money. Boomtown is a co-production of Imperative Entertainment and Texas Monthly. Executive producer is Jason Hoke. Produced and engineered by Brian Standifer, who also wrote the score. Audio assistant at the ranch was Lauren Meckel. Boomtown is edited by J.K. Nickel and Megan Kreit and co-reported by Lee Breekstad. Our theme song is written and performed by Cake Rossi. I'm your host and writer, Christian Wallace. Texas Monthly's parent company also owns interest in the midstream oil and gas industry, among other diversified investments. Our editorial judgments are made independently of any such investments. Don't forget to tell your friends about Boomtown and leave a review on Apple Podcasts if you like the show. Boomtown is a 10-episode series with new episodes available every Tuesday. Follow us on social media and visit texasmonthly.com boomtown for more on the story. Well, let me look in my washroom. That's the only place I have. I can say this is the longest I've ever looked for an almanac before. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.